you are listening to the Eating Disorders Recovery Podcast with me, Tabitha Farrar. Hello there, welcome to this week's podcast. This podcast, I talk to David Wiss, and David is the founder of an organization that's called Nutrition in Recovery. And so that's actually an organization that's um, dedicated to physical and nutritional wellness as a primary component of addiction recovery. And so David, he's got a bachelor's degree in social science, he has a master's degree in nutrition and dietetics, and he's a registered dietitian nutritionist, so an RDN. And he has got a lot of experience in nutrition and substance abuse. And today we are going to talk about how substance abuse and eating disorders interlink and how they often co-occur and what his experience, the things that he's seen in in treatment centres, and not just in treatment centres as well, and what he thinks needs to change in not just eating disorder treatment, but substance abuse treatment, in order to recognise the importance of recognising eating disorders, I guess. So, without further ado, first of all, David's going to tell us a little bit about him, and here's David. Okay, thank you. Yeah, I'm thrilled to be here with you today. I am David Wiss. I'm a master's level registered dietitian nutritionist in Los Angeles. I'm the founder of Nutrition and Recovery. We're a group practice here in West LA and um, have been doing uh, individual counseling and consulting with uh, substance use disorder treatment centers since 2012, 2013. Uh, my vision was to bring the message of nutrition into facilities. I know that there was a big gap there. Um, I think it's safe to say that I got into the field thinking I would do more fitnessy things and kind of figured out really quickly that nutrition for mental health was not being addressed. And as someone that has some uh, personal comfort levels with uh, uh, addiction and substance use disorder, I had a strong vision. I wanted to bring Uh, new information to people that were in treatment to support using uh, health and nutrition to uh, essentially revolutionize mental health. So uh, Nutrition and Recovery does uh, on-site work at facilities, and then we have an office where we see people one-on-one, done some consulting work around the globe, and I am also a PhD student at UCLA in the School of Public Health. So I kind of have a hybrid of a uh, clinical and then academic career. I'm split between the two, which is great for me because I read a lot of research articles and I'm able to bring that into my uh, practice. So when you say nutrition and recovery, you're talking about substance abuse recovery? Uh, No. Recovery is talking about uh, anything that might involve recovery. That includes eating disorders, anxiety, depression body image, anything that feels like um, there's a need for a revolution, but it's really more in lines with mental health. So not necessarily recovery from a a heavy workout, but uh, I've been able to spin it that way for some people. So the the paper that caught my eye was titled Registered Dietitian Nutritionist in Substance Use Disorder Treatment Centers. Hmm. So do you want to tell me a little bit about that? 
Yeah. So I've been running groups in treatment settings for, for many years, as I stated. And he, here in Los Angeles, there's a lot of treatment centers. Um, uh, I've mostly worked with m more private sector, high-end places, although more recently with my public health training, we're moving into nonprofit um, uh, Medi-Cal, for example, based treatment settings, which is really exciting. Um, the main point of that article was just to let people know that this is a thing, right? Like that dietitians are underrepresented in this sector. There's a missed opportunity. There is a need, basically, a strong need for services here. And it's been a conversation that's been around ever since I've been a dietitian that, you know, d d there's dietitians that work in behavioral health and that work in uh, addictions, but I haven't ever seen it actually stick. In other words, I've heard dietitians that take contracting jobs in addiction treatment centers and then love it for a few months and then get burnt out or the center does some um, restructuring and they look at their finances and then they cut nutrition services because it's not a required part of the treatment formula. In other words, insurance doesn't necessarily recognize it. So when I got interested in this, um, uh, I, I saw little bits and pieces of you know evidence that this was a thing, but I, I knew that without evidence, like real strong evidence that this worked, it would never actually become a thing. So I have been dedicating myself towards producing some of that evidence base. The paper you're referring to was more um, uh, an invitation for dietitians to feel comfortable diving into this work. I think that, uh, if I remember correctly, that paper I s we suggested uh, several group topics. So it was just a matter of saying, you know what, you can come in here as a professional and you can run groups. And so I suggested groups that were very, maybe different than the classic dietetic approach. So no emphasis on calories or weight loss. The groups were more about mental health, body image, microbiome, those kind of things. And I mean, those are things that hopefully people are talking about today, but uh, it was a blueprint for dietitians that were looking to move into this sector to say, you can do this, here's some ideas, go for it. Yeah, so then I, I guess as um, I'm interested in the overlap then there with eating disorder populations, eating disorder treatment and the things that you might see in um, substance abuse treatment centers or anything along those lines because um, we hear, we often hear that um, substance abuse is pretty common among people with eating disorders and maybe you know it happens the other way around but I think there's um, not much clarity on that yeah it's such a great question um, you know, this conversation has been uh, hot in the last few years. I, there was a textbook written in 2014 uh, called Eating Disorders, Substance Use Disorders, and Addiction. 
And I was able to contribute to that. And I got a chance to read all the chapters and be a part of that movement. And the, the, the main message that came out of that research and, and that textbook, uh, which I've really taken to, was that these quote-unquote disorders have been treated separately and you know sequentially, and they have not been addressed concurrently in an in integrative fashion. So the trend that uh, I see and we see is that insurance kind of recognize them as separate things. So people often oscillate between the two treatments. And then, you know, in treatment team meetings, you end up with this conversation, well, which one is primary and which one is secondary, right? Which one do you think is the main deal? And, and so people say, well, which one came first? But that is, isn't necessarily uh, an easy way to answer that question. And then there's people that would say, well, they're both symptoms anyways, right, of something more upstream, other driving forces. So the overlap is significant. It depends on the socioeconomic status of the group and the uh, region, et cetera. But you could see um, uh, up to half of a population have either uh, a clinical eating disorder or something subclinical, subthreshold disordered eating. I mean, to have um, body image issues, night eating, those are all things that are n normal in uh, addiction treatment. So the overlap is significant, it's bi directional. And because they're treated separately, what I've seen is people either bouncing from one to the other, getting their eating disorder recovery on track, and then having their addiction issues get out of control, and then getting a referral back to one of these places. And they're trying to um, uh, kind of, they, a lot of places say they treat them both, but it's not really clear that they do. Or really, I think what you're asking is like, how, how to do that, right? Like, um, one of the biggest and most interesting facets of it all is that, um, you know, in many ways, addiction recovery hinges upon adherence to some black and white thinking, right? So no alcohol means none. And no, no, no opiates means like no, not even a half of Vicodin. So there's almost like a strong emphasis on, you know, having a, a black and white way of living life. And then as you know, with food stuff, we try to move people away from black and white thinking and more towards a, a gray approach. And it can be, imagine being a client and being told in this area of your life, you need to be black and white. And in this area of your life, you need to be very gray. That could be uh, very challenging, I think, for people. And they would often feel m misunderstood. So I believe that there's a way to address both the food and body issues as well as the alcohol and drug issues uh, concurrently. I don't think that this old model of let's treat one and let the other one rear its head and then treat the other is effective. I think there, the case that people make is that if someone is coming off of many years of alcohol and drugs, that they should be able to like kind of be given a break and like let them do their thing there a little bit. Um, I, I understand that, and there are times when I can get behind that. 
But what I have seen is that there's a lot of people that have eating disorders that are hiding out in addiction treatment centers because it's a place where they can be in treatment and still be binging and purging and dieting all day long. And that's the problem is that people, they, they know, someone with an eating disorder knows that they can go to a place where people don't monitor that, they don't know about that, and they can be in treatment, they can be sober, and they can be engaging in all these other kind of self-destructive behaviors, and it will totally fly under the radar. And to be honest, a lot of places will uh, pro- maybe even intentionally turn their eye because they don't, they don't want to know because then they might have to think about referring out. So I have a vision where people that have um, uh, food and body issues, disordered eating, will you know be uh, treated during addiction treatment, and it just revol- It's going to involve many years of staff training, teaching people that who work in addiction settings about these things, things to look for, ways to message. Because I'm sure you know that staff is like the most important like in many ways, the most important part of any kind of treatment operation. And if the staff isn't modeling, um, you know, food positive and body positive behavior, uh, it's, it's only going to trickle down to the clients. So it's a big topic. Like I said, the work that I do has really been about bridging the gap between the two, bringing the message of um, uh, recovery to places that have uh, eating disorder clients and being able to kind of merge the, the, the messages there. Yeah, and um, while you're talking about all that, I'm sitting here thinking, well, I must, I'm a complete idiot because um, I'm always thinking about eating disorder treatment centers. And I mean, they, they can be problematic enough. They're not perfect. Right, um, we could go there. <laughs> and I, I have had over the years and do have a number of clients who have, um, substance abuse you know like usually it's it's under the it, it's there but it's not real real bad obviously because right. they're sitting with their eating disorder and their outpatient um but it's um I, i've never actually really thought about substance abuse treatment centers and what goes on in there and um now that i think about it it's like holy crap that's going to be a major problem and I could actually visualize some of my past clients that sometimes want to tackle I don't want to say the easiest thing but I don't know how else to describe it but they, they'd rather tackle tackle any other thing rather than their eating disorder that's usually the, the thing that they're going to protect the most mm-hmm. so I, I can really and I've had clients as well that you know I um always try to to be like I need to be in treatment for the substance abuse and uh, when I'm when I'm over that then I'll think about the eating disorder so that's huge and it must seem a little overwhelming it does seem overwhelming in my head right now when you think of all of the training that needs to happen to for the staff in order for them to become competent in recognizing disorder behavior treating it and then it goes to that other level as, as what we said demonstrating it in their own selves that body positivity right. the words that they use the things that they say and that's right so it's a it's a movement and it has uh begun like you said there's a long period of uh you know reconstruction ahead 
Um, the, the one point that is worth making, though, is that I'm always against, you know, like manualized approaches to recovery. And I think that the fascinating part about co-occurring eating disorder and substance use disorder is that you're really looking at like an intersectionality in some ways, like a convergence of two similar but somewhat different kind of issues that have their own um, special considerations and needs. So I really do think that, um, you know, studying classic eating disorders that are m maybe like, you know, more along the anorexia nervosa uh, spectrum, and then eating disorders that are more um, commonly occurring with substance use disorder that are marked by higher levels of impulsivity, uh, loss of control, that there, there are lots of similarities, but there are also some important differences that someone who wasn't trained in both eating disorders and addictions might not be able to detect. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that it's also important to leave some of the assumptions that people have like aside when you're dealing with these complicated um, issues. And I'll just give you an example to make sense out of that. One of the main assumptions with classic eating disorder is that while there might be some um, uh, either genetic, biological, or psychosocial determinants really early on in life, that the main thing that drives the eating disorder is the dieting behavior, right? The dieting mentality, right? That it doesn't start without the onset of uh, a, a diet. And um, I think that's really well supported and has a lot of strong um, evidence and it's what we see, right? So the um, main message is to uh, uh, get people off the diet train, right? Get people off of the um, um, food negative, body negative train. But with addictions, people that actually have more of a substance-related disorder, you can have a lot of the same uh, symptoms or outcomes in terms of binging, body hatred, and you can have that with no evidence of ever them being on a diet, if that makes sense. So it, it, it's, just, it's just fascinating how um, the convergence of the two, the overlap exists, but there's also a couple areas where there's divergence. And I think people understanding that will be really, really important. In other words, I've met with a lot of people in substance use disorder treatment who got like um, who had some binging behavior or some purging, and they um, they felt misunderstood by the classic eating disorder approach. The classic eating disorder approach doesn't work for the vast majority of people with eating disorders. That's where I was headed with that. <laughs> yeah okay this is definitely a different problem these assumptions I'm glad you agree. That, these assumptions that we're all you know um started off on on diets and all started off deeply unhappy with our bodies which is right. actually not the case for that's right people with eating disorders um that's right. so what do you think then if we're talking about treatment centers still what do you think goes on in eating disorder treatment centers that might also have people with substance abuse issues on them. Yeah, yeah, thank you for that. Um, you know, 
I've always been interested in, you know, which eating disorders are more likely to overlap with which substances, right? And um, those might be details to someone like who cares what substance it is, right? Does it matter if it's alcohol or speed, right? But uh, I don't know, as someone that's in the trenches and working with people and someone that collects data, like those things matter to me, right? Obviously, um, substances that are more stimulant based, right, that are appetite suppressants are going to appeal to a certain group of people. Um, there was one research study that came out not long ago that showed that, you know, even nicotine in the vaporizers are, you know, many, many people over, over 13% in this study were using it as an appetite suppressant. Um, so, you know, I've seen a lot of, um, overlap with, with alcohol and some of the more clinically, um, um, classic eating disorders. Um, obviously, you know, alcohol has calories, so it introduces a whole new like calculation thing going on there for some people, not for all. Um, I've always been interested in, um, you know, uh, you know, bulimic symptomatology. I'm trying to move away from calling people bulimic and calling people as an individual. It's just more words. So it's hard individual with bulimia nervosa um i've i've become really interested in the more in the purge than i than i than i used to be i used to really want to know about the binge right uh i'm starting to learn more about purging behavior being highly rewarding in itself being a, a strong mechanism for self-soothing uh changing vagal tone um, being a, a short-term seeming treatment for trauma. And um, yeah, I, I've done a little bit of background research on the link between uh, PTSD, complex trauma, and uh, drugs, particularly opioids, and the convergence between um, uh, underlying trauma with using substance use to treat that and then also not just um, uh, binge behavior, but having the purge be an important kind of part of that self-medication regimen. So yeah, in an eating disorder treatment center, you can get people that are on, uh, I don't know, I mean, caffeine, nicotine, are those, do we count those as drugs? Because those are important, those are important substances that we don't talk enough about. But a good eating disorder center should be, uh, should be screening people, I think, in, in treatment. I don't, I know not a lot of all of them do, but should be drug testing people at a bare minimum. I think there's a trend moving towards that. But if not, you know, there's a lot of drugs and things people take now that aren't, that aren't being tested for, right? There's a lot of like, you know, like GHB and Special K and all these other drugs that aren't classically uh, tested for. So um, what is your experience with people in eating disorder treatment and substance use and abuse? Well, I imagine that if somebody goes into an eating disorder treatment center, then it's going to be, if, if they are abusing substances that aren't allowed in the treatment center, then that's going to be, of, I guess they can't get at it, um, which may there's all sorts of symptoms and problems that maybe um, staff might not be if they're not trained in substance mm -hmm. stuff, and they might not be 
don't prepared to deal with. Um, but then I also think that sort of partial hospitalization programs mean that those things can't necessarily be controlled or monitored. Um, yes. And I think it's a lot more common than um, people think that just because um, I know that probably not just people with eating disorders are very good at hiding things. And so if they're in treatment for their eating disorder, they may have come to the point where they're right, and now I'm going to have to talk about this. But yes. might very well be hiding something else. But, and it's, it's all going to contribute in, in some way, because even if somebody, even if the things aren't, say, biologically linked, or then, then uh, the behaviors will become somewhat correlated or um, neurologically linked over time. Mm -hmm. That's right. Between the two things going to build. So it's just like anything, even for somebody to recover from an eating disorder, pretty much everything that's that's in their environment, things that they do regularly, things in their life, is all going to be part of that recovery in some level because the brain makes associations between behaviors and stimulus and environment mm -hmm. and all those things. And so I think that one of the biggest problems in eating disorder treatment centers is that the neural rewiring aspect isn't really dealt with. People are just That's going right. there and they're fed. And then because they're not making decisions themselves, they're not actually choosing things, they come out and that neural network is still there. And so they just go straight into those behaviors when they're back in the home environment. And so that's I imagine right. that anything that's to do with a substance that's addictive is going to be even more difficult to rewire. I don't know if that's true or not. But it is. That's that's how, after this conversation, I'm starting to think of these things, I guess, in a different way that I had before. Yeah, addictions really occur really far back to, at the, you know, towards the, towards the brainstem and the reptilian brain. That's where the reward centers are. So, you know, food and sex, our survival mechanisms are all the way back there, like, be, you know, beyond the limbic system at the most kind of... Um, Rep reptilian parts of our brain and then drugs of abuse are also being um computed the reward aspects back there so it it it, it is definitely uh deep wiring not just kind of surface level things that for some people might have to do with how many dopamine receptors they have it might be genetically biologically predetermined and might not be an easy uh, thing it might be a lifelong uh, process where like you can't expect someone's brain to ever be not easily susceptible to addiction like processes. I mean, it's just a, it's a known biological fact and that hasn't been recognized in eating disorder treatment at, at all. They really have, in my opinion, shunned off some of the neurobiological aspects of it, as you said. The genetic work that is coming through is beginning to shift that, I think, and people are understanding that, oh, that's this genetic predisposition is actually yes so I think the it's true the shifts are happening so I have a question for you this is something that I've kind of hoped uh, struggled with and thought is really fascinating on the kind of co-occurring substance and eating disorder topic uh, is you know I've I've noticed that in the kind of outpatient setting a lot of my eating disorder clients have been able to find psychiatrists that will get them on Vyvanse or other appetite suppressing medications and 
as a as a dietitian that knows a lot about addictions, um, don't necessarily um, always get to weigh in as much as I'd like to on the medications. Uh, but I have called some psychiatrists just to talk these things th- through. Uh, I'm just wondering, have you seen a lot of overlap between those amphetamine drugs and eating disorder clients? And uh, have you ever had to, like, you know, call the psychiatrist or make any of those kind of moves? I have spoken to a number of psychiatrists. But the, I'm, I guess I have the same sort of problem that you do, but probably even more so because I'm a recovery coach, which isn't something that's particularly recognized. Yeah, For an, sure. An expert by experience, not by uh, letters after my name. And so I think right. that people are generally very polite and I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing kind of kind of thing. That's right. Um, That's right. And, um, so it, it can certainly, um, there are many things that can be frustrating. And I think that it all comes down to everybody's trying to do their job the best that they can. Um, I do think that, and I talk about this a lot, you're probably sick of me harping on about it, but I do think that lived experience is something that's just not listened to enough. Mm-hmm. So somebody with lived experience with whatever disorder it is, and not just lived experience, but then a ton of research and continue to work in the field for a long time. I just think that um, the, that um, research and science can can sort of build a they can build this theory, but it's lived experience that pads that out and actually mm. adds color to it and makes it whether it's actually effective or not or practical or not. And so. I, I think that, or I hope that in the eating disorder field, and it sounds like it may need to happen in other fields as well, that um, people with lived experience, experts by experience, start to be able to influence and be part of the team a little bit more than other than like, oh, well, you're just peer support down there. Um, yeah, I agree with that. I think recovery coaches in the eating disorder world will become critical at some point, or at least having more peer-to-peer support kind of thing. It's one of the major missing pieces, right? With substance use disorder addiction, there's 12-step communities where you have people that have been separated for 10 years. They're still out there telling their story. They're showing up to be helpful. But usually with eating disorders, when people recover, um, you know, they want to like oftentimes, not always, oftentimes like shut the door on it, right? Like that was... Yeah, fair enough if people want to do that, but I think (laughs) there's there's a lot that don't. But it is. um, I also think that um, you know, dietitians are starting to kind of creep up. Eating disorder field used to be all about the therapist. I think. Yeah. I think that I do think that that's changing. I think that people are starting to see more of the biology and sort of think, okay, well, we need to start actually involving doctors and dietitians and and others because there's the biological mm-hmm. elements that the therapist might necess- not necessarily be equipped to deal with. Or... And gastroenterologists. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a big thing too, the overlap there between uh, gut hi- gut issues and eating disorders. I think classically it was when in the therapist-dominated uh, setting, there might easily be an assumption that that's all in your head or that's a psychosomatic experience. But now with the more kind of cutting edge biological understandings we're starting to say actually no like we should get this tested and start to think and talk about these things um but it's tricky because once you're buying in and getting things tested you can be spending a lot of energy just in supporting someone's 
uh, obsessive mind. So it's a really fragile thing to balance all of these topics, the convergence of them all. Well, this is actually really fascinating to me. And I feel, I think that it's, um, in the eating disorder field, I do think it's this area that everybody kind of knows that these are really commonly occurring problems. But it's like, oh, well, we're just going to talk about the eating disorder because, hell, I don't even know what to do in that area. And um, then realizing that, that, well, that's probably not working out. Because as you said, you might you treat one thing and then the other thing gets worse. And often what, what my observation is, is that um, it's not the first it's not the first couple of months of eating disorder treatment. It's usually the six to 12 months after initial weight gain. That's mm-hmm. when the shit hits the fan in terms of anything that's co-occurring. When you know, it's usually that initial weight gain happens and then a little bit of or a lot of negative body image stuff come, sets in, and maybe a little bit of depression, which I think are the, the, in the sort of um, first six to 12 months of recovery, depression's quite a, relatively normal, mm-hmm. just that short bout. But I think that that can spark off a heck of like other things if, if somebody has those co-occurrings. And so I think that that's actually often the really problematic time. And that's not when a person's going to be in an eating disorder treatment center. That's actually when they come that's out right. a lot of the time and when their insurance right. is dropping. So that's, that's always actually the, the time period I'm, I'm pretty interested in bringing people's attention to because I mm-hmm. think somebody gains a little bit of weight and everybody goes, hooray, you're cured, bye. <laughs> and then all of their support's gone really when they're struggling the most mentally. And the same argument can be made about the addiction treatment centers, right? The uh, early recovery detox phase is usually marked by rapid weight gain because a lot of people that come in are um, uh, malnourished. Not everyone, obviously, but there's a lot of that. And there's always been a culture of like, um, you know, get get some meat on your bones, get back to your normal weight so you're uh, not looking sucked up again. Again, this is not true for all people and for all substances. But uh, there's a culture of like kind of binging and night eating and that kind of thing in early recovery that I think is somewhat uh, acceptable. But as you said, once someone leaves recovery, it's six months, a year sober, 18 months sober those patterns are likely going to persist, right? And so there ends up being a lot of weight-related concerns for both women and men across the getting sober kind of trajectory. And uh, it, it could lead to a common thing we predict and see a lot of is, you know, excessive exercise or exercise addiction. That's uh, a a way that people seem to to cope with it. But um, I don't know. I guess the point is like the timing of the intervention matters. Like if you try to intervene with nutrition at six days sober, it might feel too soon. But if you wait until six months, it might be too like late. Some of the things are already cemented in place. So being able to conceptualize the right time to either put someone in a group or put someone uh, one-on-one with a dietitian to have these kind of conversations, I think matters. If you do it too soon, it'll land on someone as maybe this is unfair or punitive. Uh, if you do it too late, some of the 
behaviors might already be somewhat neurologically by, uh, embedded. So, uh, David, I have, I know I have dietitians, therapists, people with eating disorders, loved ones of people with eating disorders, big mix of people usually all in the eating disorder category that listen to this mm -hmm. podcast. And there'll probably be a few people that are thinking, oh crap, I need to pay attention to this. Mm. So if people want to learn more or find out more uh, about you or any of this work, then where can we point them to? Yeah, thank you. On my website, which is www.nutritionin, that's I-N, recovery.com, I post a lot of short videos and webinars that I've recorded. I always put links to my journal articles. Um, I, I, I do have a, a recent book chapter on nutrition for addiction recovery. It's called What We Know and What We Don't. I'm always happy to share resources, answer questions. Um, I have a newsletter that I put out once a month that you can sign up for on my website. It's usually a five-minute video where I'm we're just reviewing some of the more recent research. So when new articles come out, I'll just talk about some of the findings and how they might be relevant to our, our practice. Um, I'm, uh, like I said, doing some academic stuff. So I got a lot of really exciting things coming soon, always. Um, I, I'm planning to share some of my curriculum um, with the world at some point. I'm using it for research purposes right now, but I have developed eating disorder friendly nutrition curriculum for addiction treatment settings um, where, you know, a group can be ran which promotes moving towards a, um, you know, more balance uh, in, terms of, in terms of what people eat, but also having it not be a, a punitive message. That's the real challenge with uh, messaging in addiction treatment is that most people have a very low quality diet and we do need to move people towards more fruits and vegetables and move them away from highly processed foods like that is the actual nutrition intervention that needs to happen but how you say it is what matters right because how you say it can make the difference between someone becoming um, obsessed or uh, possibly developing some disordered thoughts around food and that's the real training is not just the 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 what but the how and the why huge thank you to david Riss for coming on the podcast and chatting to me about what's a really important topic very interesting if you have experience in this field then i would be really interested to talk to you if you have anything that you think you'd like to say i'm particularly interested in people who have lived experience of any of the things that we talked about in this podcast. But also, professionals in the field are very welcome also to reach out. I think that it's something that we need to talk about a lot more and, and maybe get some things rolling, get some things moving and changing. And um, talking to David got me thinking about collaboration. And um, I just recently went to the Feast of Knowledge um, Day, which is what feast organizes it's their one day conference and they tap it on to the end of the um iced conference that aed runs and just because people will be around and so feast does their one day conference the day after and uh it's always wonderful i always really enjoy it it's just a very caring collaborative atmosphere and one of the things that 
uh, was talked about uh, that day a fair amount was collaboration. I think that patients and carers and, and feasters, mostly made up of parent carers, are very interested in collaborating rather than this is my thing, this is the way I do this and I'm going to promote my own model because they're the people that are in the trenches actually doing the work and they just they just want to do what works and they understand that that often means a large amount of collaboration because we're all still learning we're all still many people in this field trying to do the right thing and we have to learn and we have to listen and we have to change and talking to David got me thinking about that we may have made strides to collaborate within the eating disorder field with one another but we also have to start collaborating outside of the eating disorder field. Many different areas, really. When a person has an eating disorder, it gets, it involves itself in every aspect of that person's life. And so in order to fully help a person with an eating disorder, we sort of have to have knowledge about a lot of other things as well and things that might be uh, contributing factors to that eating disorder. And so collaboration outside of the eating disorder field, I think is going to become more and more important if we really want to move forward and make changes. Anyway, thank you for listening. Like I said, shoot me an email if you have any thoughts. My email is info at Thanks for listening. Cheers. And until next time, cheerio.